0: Welcome to the Nebraska Hawk's Nest. These guys are brave. They're Hawkeyes living in enemy territory. Listen, these guys are way past their prime, but they're still Hawkeyes. They're spreading the Hawkeye height to all of Nebraska. The frost advisory is cancelled. Corn huskers? More like corn suffers. Are you ready for this podcast? Let's go!
1: Welcome back to the Nebraska Hawks Nest. Make sure to give us a like and subscribe to get all of the latest interviews for all of our Hawkeye legends. Women's, men's, basketball, football, wrestling, everything that we get to do. And today we are lucky enough to be joined by former Iowa Hawkeye quarterback Mark Vlasic. Sir, how are we doing today? Doing
0: fantastic. And it is an honor to be here. And I'm laughing hearing the comments of legends and they can, okay, I don't fit in that category <laughs> um, way past their prime. I never even had a prime. So I'm just trying to figure out what the heck you're doing with me on your show.
1: You know, it's funny because that's been taken so out of context. Cause uh, me and uh, the other guy, Jerry, that do this together, that was meant to be directed towards us. And now all the guys that like we interview, they think that we're saying they're past their prime. So I'm like, eh, maybe we better change that. We've had, had a few uh, guys to take exception to that. And be like, I'm not past my prime. Come on, man. Hey,
0: it was, uh, I've, I've told my son who ended up uh, six foot eight. And had I been six foot eight, I would have followed the path of basketball, which coming out of high school was probably my greater love than football. But at 6'4", I was way too short to play inside. But I had told him, I said, you know what? Everybody has their last game. And uh, usually it's because something else that you couldn't control dictated that. An injury, you weren't good enough anymore and nobody wanted you anymore, but there's always a last game. So we are all past our prime. And, And I remember my rookie year in San Diego, Dan Fouts was still there. And the other comment he made to me at that stage was, we all played before our time when it came to the money, uh, and, and I share that. And I remember him telling me his rookie year he made twenty-seven thousand dollars or something like that. Wow! <laughs> we all are at well past our prime, and we all played well before the uh, what these guys are making now.
1: I feel like that's what I made uh, my rookie year out of college, uh, just working my full-time job was right around. $30,000. And I look back now, I'm like, how did I live off of that? But I figured it out. So I,
0: we all did. And we
1: all do. So um, we you talked about uh, coming up out of uh, Pennsylvania as a high school student in the 1980s. And um, not too many Iowa quarterbacks coming out of the state of Pennsylvania. Tell us about your recruiting process and uh, what schools you were considering and how big of a leap of faith was that for you to come out to the University of Iowa?
0: That's a lot of questions. Uh, obviously, any decision we make in life is a big leap of faith. And, and uh, I will admit being in Pennsylvania, it's kind of like, OK, hadn't even heard of the University of Iowa for, I, again, here's the early 80s, other than we, we were always watching uh, as a family, watching all of the major bowl games that were January 1st, back when January 1st was the last day for bowl games. and You'd get the Rose Bowl and the Orange Bowl and the Sugar Bowl, all the majors, and you get to watch the Rose Bowl, which consisted of two conferences, Big Ten and Pac-10, and that was the only way to get to the Rose Bowl. And, you know, coming out of that prior season was Iowa in their first Rose Bowl in a number of years, and with two senior quarterbacks, uh, was that Pete Gales and Gordy uh, were coming out that year, like, well, here's an opportunity to come in as a freshman and compete on a team that just came from the Rose Bowl. Um, I liked what they were doing from an offense perspective. And and, um, from a recruiting perspective, it was Barry Alvarez was Mm. the coach that recruited me. Barry was from Burgettstown, Pennsylvania, which was about 30 miles from where I grew up. His core recruiting area was Chicago. But did have a, and I, to this day, am extremely grateful and thankful that somebody gave this knucklehead from Western Pennsylvania an opportunity to even come out and talk and and look at me. Um, But that area, I was about 30 miles out of Youngstown, Ohio. The Stoops brothers were there. Um, Jonathan Hayes, George Little, guys who were from Pittsburgh. That was kind of Barry's little connection to uh, recruiting to Iowa. Um, I learned a lot during that period of being recruited. Uh, it was an incredible process to come up with a school. Um, but I mean, there were schools from the Southeast Conference to the Pac-10 to, uh, my first visit was to the University of Tennessee. Uh, Johnny Majors was the head coach. Wow. Um, kind of learned a lot as you were going and doing these trips. Uh, one of them was. There are limited numbers. When they say, hey, we're going to recruit two quarterbacks, that's their goal. Um, and they have them ranked, and goodness knows where I was ranked. But I remember going to Tennessee, and the recruiting coordinator uh, was sharing with me after the fact, and I appreciated his honesty, because uh, often you see in sports in this world of media, I don't think everybody's up front. You never really know what the heck they're to believe. Uh, but I remember him telling me, he said, Mark, Because Tennessee had a quarterback who had uh, a knee injury. Uh, And he was also a baseball player, a pitcher. And uh, I think he was a pitcher. But they were going to sign three kids out of high school and three junior college guys. Oh, wow. And so, okay, boy, you know, I, I think highly of myself, but you're trying to find the best opportunity. Well, week two, I was to go to the University of Miami. And I get back from Tennessee. Miami calls and said, "Hey, uh, we already filled our quota. We got our two quarterbacks." So, you know, in retrospect, it was Teste Verde and Cozar. Wow! I can at least really say, "All right, I get beat out by some very good ball players." Um, but I had other trips uh, to Virginia and, and Indiana, and had one scheduled to go out to UCLA. And seeing how the numbers game began to play out, I only took five of my six recruiting trips. And again, back on leap of faith, here's a school that is looking for a quarterback, an opportunity to compete as a freshman, in the Big Ten, can go to the Rose Bowl. I, I loved everything about what Iowa offered, the recruiting trip there, and it was AI committed and said, I'm ready to become a Hawkeye in a decision I am forever grateful for.
1: So you were a Hawkeye during uh, a lot of us would say, you know, during a real prime period during the, the 1980s where, you know, it was a really a, re, a rebirth of Hawkeye football. Being a student on the University of Iowa campus as well as an athlete, what, what was it like being a Hawkeye during that time period? How, how did it feel being on campus being, you know, one of the, one of the guys on the University of Iowa football team?
0: It it was, um, as I said, uh, an experience I will forever be grateful for. And I I will say the one thing I misinterpreted as a ball player there was how nice the people were. Not just students, but the fans, the, the community in Iowa City. And I misinterpreted that as, you know, you're on the football team. They hadn't won in 30 years, and now we have this winning program. Oh, we love you. And it was something I actually uh, better understood and appreciated after leaving and being in California and being in Florida and in Kansas City that I realized there was a lot more to the um, openness and warm uh, welcoming that everybody made. They just were people who truly cared and were really nice. And and I still have friends today and families from Iowa City that had no connection to school, but that we met while we were there. And again, that was, it was an incredible experience being there at the time when uh, we were having success in in all the sports. and especially on the football side.
1: That's definitely one of the biggest things I took for granted before I really started to travel the country was how friendly and genuine and hardworking the people of the state of Iowa are. Um, you know, you go out to the different coasts and it is it's so different. And there's great people no matter where mm-hmm. you go. But that just uh you know, it's it's an eye opener. To think how you know you you go to Iowa and people hold hold doors open for each other. They say hi to one another. They make eye contact
0: mm-hmm. with one
1: another, and they're kind to each other. And that doesn't really permeate throughout the entire country. I've noticed. Um, so it, it's a special place, and all the people that have you know grown up there, spent time there, definitely. I, I feel like it, have noticed that and appreciated that too. So um, I've I talked to multiple people that have come from both coasts and they said the one thing that the Iowa doesn't have that's refreshing is so much of a sense of entitlement from the people that live there. People know they have to work for what they have and, and, you know, really put themselves out there and and make a living for themselves. So it's cool to hear things like that from people that have come from all over the country. But, you know, regardless, you know, like we said, there's good people all over the, all over the country. Good people are good people. Um, Wanted to really talk to you about one of, I would think one of the highlights of your career. Um, getting to hold for one of the biggest kicks in Iowa football history when number two Michigan came to Iowa city when we were number one in the country in 1985. Now, um, with Rob Houtland hitting that kick. And being one of the greatest moments in Iowa football history, I I want you to kind of walk us through being a part of that, what that was like, what the feeling was like in the stadium, and how cool that felt to be a part of that.
0: So I guess on that end, I'm going to start with the beginning and your promo video of a goalpost coming down. I assume that was from that game. Now, I don't know the, if that's correct or not. But. That
1: was when we ripped the goalposts down at Minnesota, their last game at the Metrodome, and all the Iowa fans stormed the field, and we tried to take their goalposts out of the stadium. I, they wouldn't, they wouldn't fit out the door. So that's why Minnesota, <laughs> that's why Minnesota hates us so much. Uh,
0: it's, uh, there are a whole lot of reasons for that, and and I always loved that rivalry. That again, growing up in Pennsylvania, didn't even know existed, um, and bringing. Bringing back Floyd to Rosedale, uh, exciting. But anyway, seeing that goalpost took me back to the uh, game in 1985 when we were playing Michigan, and we were ranked one, they were ranked number two. And from a ballplayer perspective, you knew it was a big game, um, but it was a game. And, you know, preparation for it was no different than any other game. Um, But, oh, wait a minute, it's a night game we don't have lights. So must go lighting that, you know, I think it was pretty early in their stage of, of, you know, where they are as a business now brought in portable lights. Oh, this is cool. Oh, you know, normally you get up in the morning, you have breakfast, you head over to the stadium and you know, you're, you're playing a game by lunch. Wait a minute. We got breakfast and we still don't have a game. Um, it wasn't until you know, late afternoon that we started. Uh, So the environment was definitely different. And then you do take a number one playing a number two and the electricity in the city and the state. I just, you know, goosebumps uh, of building up to that game. Um, It was incredible. Um, When you look at how the game went, I I still laugh when I see the videos of Coach Fry talking about the conversation with Bo Schembeckler ahead of time. Now, one, in the tradition of why the visiting locker room is pink, it was if I could get somebody focused on anything but the game, it helps. It's all an advantage. And so uh, it wasn't just for that game, but but Coach Fry had the visiting locker room painted pink. So the understanding was when visiting teams, Bo Schembechler, ahead of the team arriving, would have somebody from their staff put newspapers up all over the wall so that it covered the pink. So, again, getting him to think about something other than the the game is a distraction and an advantage for the Hawkeyes. But to hear the story of Coach Fry, honestly, I don't even remember who the heck was deep snapping for the punter at the time that was over in front of the bench. According to Coach Fry, that was not our deep snapper. And whoever it was was just snapping the ball, and they were god-awful snaps. And Beckler looks at him and <laughs> he says, hey, you really going to play him? And I looked back at him he said, I don't plan on punting today. <laughs> uh, but, again, that was kind of the mindset. The expectation was we're going to this game for one thing, and that was to win the game. Um, so as that thing went on and we – Don't get a touchdown. We get a field goal. We don't get a touchdown. We get another field goal. Uh, We get another field goal. Um, When it came down to the last two seconds, and Chuck was driving down, got us in field goal range. The only thing went through my mind was, "Game's ours." Uh, You know, there, there there wasn't a kicker who kicked that didn't believe it was going in. I, I you know, the, the confidence of there wasn't a pass that I threw that I didn't expect to complete, except for maybe the one that you're spiking into the ground or throwing out of bounds. Um, <clears throat> so if it doesn't happen, you're actually surprised. So then we get out there, we're all set. And, you know, back in those days, we had the little tee that you had to put the ball on mm-hmm. um, the black tee and Rob had his little tape of the cross on there that, uh, Part of it was from religious. Part of it was, all right, here's exactly where the ball needs to go. And you go out and timeout back to the sideline. Um, you know, Rob's out there on the field by himself. There wasn't anybody wearing black and gold that didn't believe that field goal was going to go through. So when he hit it, and I mean, he hit it and it just you look up and like, that's good, game over. And I just remember, you know, jumping up this way. And the next thing I recall was, Climbing out from underneath a pile of people uh, that to go back and watch the news clip of it to see how high a stack of people that was. Um, we just won
1: are we're, we're number one in the country. You know, we just beat number two and there was no question about who's the better team. Do you remember what it was like that night? Did you guys go out and just tear up the town or did you guys, you know, keep low and and take it easy? I mean, you just beat the number two team in the country and you're number one. Did you, do you remember what that night was like? So uh,
0: in the context of what it felt like preparing for the game, it was just, it was another game. Again, we had practiced field goals thousands of times. We'd kicked them already in the game. Um, I think we did miss one during the game. Um, but it wasn't anything different that it was number one or two. Yeah, the intensity was probably a little higher. Coach Fry was probably a little more stressed out, and you can sense that. Yeah. But the, it was the post-game stuff that you definitely remember being di- different. Absolutely. Oh, my God, we just beat Michigan on national TV. One versus two. We are number one, and the excitement in in the whole uh, downtown Iowa City was just incredible.
1: Your years as a backup to Chuck Long and then eventually becoming the successor and the starter, what was that feeling like coming in and knowing that you're going to be the starter? Did you feel a lot of pressure like, hey, I'm coming in. I'm taking the place of of a Heisman finalist. I really got to come out. Or did you just feel like, hey, I know what I got to do. Like, this is my time to shine.
0: I would say through my entire career, not just at Iowa. And um, most often it was spent as a backup. And I can assure you that standing on the sideline, I'm looking out on the field, they got the wrong guy out there playing. But it was my job doing everything to help this team win and uh, to prepare. Um, Now, as it turned out, every time I played, I usually got hurt. Uh, heck, I was injured underneath that stack of people uh, <laughs> at the Michigan game. And, and honestly, I remember laying under that pile, probably crunched over this way with a knee sticking out to the side. And it was shortly after there was an incident, um, and I'm drawing a blank on the concert, where people rushed in and, and there were people that were uh, killed, crushed, uh, going into uh, to the concert. And I remember mm-hmm. laying under there going, oh, this is how that happened. And yeah. To this day, I do not remember how I got out of the pile. Uh, I don't, um, I think Dave Crosston may have been one you know, probably heard moaning or screaming down underneath the pile and pulled people out.
1: I think uh, there was about three other people that had to go to the hospital with injuries from that pile. You weren't the only one that got hurt. You
0: no, know, so that pile, and then again, that's why seeing that, goal post come down I, I remember hearing a story after the fact of some poor uh, fan who got hit by the goalpost and I think either took their ear off like man another two inches and that thing is not light when it hits <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, it, it makes you think about like you know everyone's like yeah they're going to be serving beer and kinnick now like beer and wine it's going to be wild Yeah. And it's pretty cool. I'm excited for it too, but just wait till we have a huge win and we rush the field because that celebration that it was like at a level six or seven is going to go to like a 14 when there's all these people filled with booze. So that
0: celebration on the field was definitely at a 20 and it continued on into the downtown and, 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 for every reason to be, I mean, it, it, it was just one of those classic games and it came down to a last second and It doesn't get any better
1: than that. I I want to ask you about your relationship with Coach Fry, Um, what it was like you know, if he was involved in your recruiting process, what it was like really being coached by him and what his personality was like. Um, He had a quote for you that um, I loved. I thought it was hilarious that when you were coming in as the starter that um, reporters were asking him about you and he said, hey, he's got a way stronger arm than Chuck. He proves it because he overthrows his receivers all the time I thought that was hilarious I mean that's a that's a Hayden fry like you know poking the bear quote what was it like playing for a legend like coach Fry hearing that
0: is coach fry's sense of humor uh, just throughout and again as a um, psychologist he was always messing with somebody's mind so back to you know the question that you had asked previously about what it feel like being a starter. Uh, I had always felt that was what I was there to do. I was there to play, whether it was come off the bench to perform or to start the game and perform. Um, that was just what my role was. And yeah. It didn't feel like, no, there was some added pressure to follow a Chuck Long or anybody. Else. Hey, here's what I can do. Give me an opportunity. Uh, there are things that I can do that Chuck cannot, there are things that Chuck does that I could never do. Um, and you just learn to to use your tools and then where you come up short find other ways whether it's you know preparation mentally whether it's using other uh, resources that you have um, but that's the fun part of being in a team sport it isn't just about you um, but when it came to coach fry I mean just uh, what an incredible leader and um Influencer, I guess is now the term everybody has. when we attended his funeral down in in uh, Texas, it was just amazing to see the number of ball players that were there from many generations, from the SMU to the North Texas to the Iowa ball players were there, and then to really step back and go, you know what is it that we do in life to impact others? And I know what I try to do as a a financial planner, as a financial quarterback for my clients to make things work for them and accomplish their dreams, to think of the number of people that coach Fry impacted. And again, you go back to some of the randomness of life had coach Alvarez never recruited me. Coach Fry come visit and say, we want you to come to Iowa. I mean, that's cool. As heck, you got Coach Fry in your house uh, telling you you want to do this. I was just one. And to think of the number of years he coached and the number of people that he affected, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here in Kansas City talking to you today had that not happened, nor would I have met my wife, who is. Uh, a Hawkeye she's from Rock Island Illinois Uh, I wouldn't Mm -hmm. have met Amy wouldn't have our kids so there's a whole lot of appreciation for what coach Fry, coach Alvarez and coach Snyder did that impacted me forever not just on the football field Uh, on the football field I it was always um, I would say looking back at it there were times it would be humorous uh we were so well prepared as the quarterback we had every tool back then to probably call within our cadence we could call probably 90% of the playbook on the field through the cadence and you were so well prepared to go okay well you know, the defenses weren't as tricky as they are now they pretty much lined up in what you would see them playing like oh my gosh we you know second and 10 here's the defense here's a play we should be in so the flexibility to audible we would change the play quite often because here's what was here's what the defense presented now the challenge was they didn't always work hmm. and so there was nothing more challenging than coming off the field and coach fry looking at you you changed his play and it didn't work and he would just He'd get on the headset. He would grab the phone and talk to Coach Schneider. You know what? The first thing I would do is pick up the phone and talk to Coach Snyder, and Coach Snyder would say, hey, if you get back up there and see the same thing, do it again. Just hit it next time. You know, don't miss the throw. Now, the flip side would be you would change a play. Chuck would change a play, come back with a touchdown or a big play, and Coach Fry would be like, yeah. But, again, you know, the ones that didn't work, it was, oh, man.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you have
0: to deal with them. Um, but he called all the plays and we would be on the field and have to know sometimes the formation that he called wasn't exactly the formation that we practiced for the play that he put in. So we would have to fix it on the field. (laughs) Um, But again, a guy who as a leader, um, there was no doubt you, you know, you go through a wall for him and the team did that. and, And it was reflective of how we played. It was reflective of the staff uh and again a uh, forever thankful for what what coach fry uh, did for all of us I,
1: I like to think that things happen for a reason and um i think it's a pretty cool coincidence that i believe and you correct me if i'm wrong cuz you lived it um your first game as a starter was against iowa state and that ended up being coach fry's uh made him the all-time winningest coach as um the uh, the iowa Hawkeye football coach um let, tell us how that felt and how satisfying that must have been for you as a player to help propel one of the greatest coaches in college football history to that record.
0: In retrospect, I mean, it, it's cool as heck to be part of that. At the time, it was, I wouldn't say irrelevant. The objective was to go out and win the game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so you often lose context of where these things play. and go, oh my gosh, that's incredible. I I, I remember being over at a K State game with Coach Snyder hitting one of those thresholds, and and I've you know I've seen him after the game congratulating him, and, and you know he looked at me and he said, well, if you coach long enough, you get to some point where you have yeah. a of wins. But it's it, again reflective of of when you look at the number of wins that Iowa had from the 60s, you know, the mid-60s through 78 when he got there to what he did in a time frame of that was, you know, five years uh, was remarkable.
1: Yeah, no, it it really was. And I just, I can't imagine being in your shoes and being able to be the one to, you know, lead that march to to put him over the top. That must have been the coolest feeling in the world but speaking of had to been one of the coolest feelings in the world is playing in the 1986 holiday bowl um just a classic game against a really really good san diego state mm-hmm. aztec football team um can you walk us through uh what it was like to play in that game uh, that was just a back and forth tough game that um Again, seem to just work out for us in the very end, as it, it, it does for Iowa football. That's just like a classic Iowa football—you know, grind it out, you know, and then just set it up so we have the last shot at the end of the game. What was it like playing in such a, a an awesome historic bowl game like that?
0: I, I mean, the the history of the Holiday Bowl, and you know, as it turned out, it was often you know the Big Ten was going to go out and play the. Um, their conference champ, who was San Diego State that year. And, you know, you'd see the games of the BYUs and these. you know, Jim McMahon, uh, who I spent a year with in San Diego, played in one of the most memorable holiday bowl games. Again, these last second victories, um, back and forth battles, again, kind of back to the context of the Michigan game, back to the context of Iowa State uh, being a first start expectation was we're we're going out here to win and regardless of what the situation was there was never a feeling that we're out of this or that we're not going to find a way to win you know even though we we fell to a pretty good deficit at halftime um you know and just keep doing what you're supposed to do here's the game plan we're going to find a way to win this game um and so just the excitement to be able to to come back from where we were down um, and then, you know, kind of getting our team in a position to be there for a last-second field goal that, if you know, if we got in that opportunity, you knew Rob's going to make it. I mean, he did it in the Michigan game. He did it multiple times. He did it in the Minnesota game, although they gave us an extra kick due to a penalty, um, and I, I remember them saying, you know, they were trying to pinpoint who the extra player was at Minnesota, and I think the coach finally said, I think they had, like, 12 or 13 guys on the field. It just, I mean, they had like 13 or 14. It wasn't just one extra. Um, (laughs) But it was, again, we were expecting to win. Not that way. The same thing with the Holiday Bowl. Uh, And so to uh, be an opportunity to create uh, some drives and and chances to get the team back in the game and get in a position that now it only takes a field goal and then Kevin Harmon with a big kickoff return and getting us in a position to be able to, to, Score at the last second uh, was exciting as heck. Um, You know, uh, little story on back with Coach Fry and how things work on game day and how things going back to the, you know, changing plays. There was a point uh, we were down on the one yard line. We needed a touchdown, Um, and and during the season we would get down to the one, and you don't want to lose the opportunity like fumble and interception, and called a play, and it was a run play, uh, probably either to Richard Bass or Rick Bayless. I don't remember at the time, but I remember we're on the one-yard line, and we head up to the line of scrimmage, and Sindo, Mark Simlinger, the center, turns around and tells me he's got the nose guard. So here's the play called. Nobody else on the team knows it. Take the snap, quarterback sneak, and I'm laying on the field, and I could see the pylon. I made it over. They didn't call a touchdown. So you go back to the huddle. Oh. So Fry sends in the next play. It's the same run play he called before. Get to the line of scrimmage. Sendo goes, I got him. I go in, I score a touchdown. And coming off the field, I mean, i just excited. We got a touchdown. You knew what you could do. You knew what needed to be done. In um, the context was our team just scored a touchdown and we needed it. I come out. Coach Fry grabs me by the face mask and tells me if I ever change another one of his plays, I won't play another down at the University of Iowa. This is what he told me after we had just scored. <laughs> and I, I, I remember thinking, "Well, you know, I don't have any more games after this. And, no, I didn't change the play. I, I think it is mine. He felt maybe Mark needed a rushing touchdown. Mark's not known to rush the ball. I never understood why he would call option plays because that's a pitch. I am not a runner. Yeah. But to get a touchdown, I I think at the time he was, you know, Mark was being selfish and needed this. And that was the last thing Mark or anybody on that team was, we needed a touchdown. I just figured it's the emotions of the game. That's how it works. Put us in a position though, where we're now, you know, we're back in this game, and we go and win it. And you know, I, I'm kicking that field goal, and I remember watching Phil Hattie, our sports information director, running in from the goalpost to celebrate, and I remember was, that. I, I would say the excitement as a ball player um, was every bit as exciting as winning the Michigan game. Um, it's <clears throat> like you're out in the driveway as a kid shooting baskets you're always shooting the last second, three, two, one, throwing the touchdown, seeing the field goal yeah. go through uh, was just so exciting. On that end, years later, we're back in Rock Island for Thanksgiving, visiting my wife's family, driving back, stopped in the football office. I remember Chuck was on the staff at the time, and the co- the team was waiting for their invitation for a bowl game, so I stopped in the coach's office, saw Coach Fry. And again thinking back to that was something that was in the moment on the sideline when he grabbed my face mask and telling me you'll never play another down and i swear when i saw him that day um, and now we're talking somewhere in the 2000s i mean late 90s uh, i had lost weight from playing days but the first thing he said to me he says oh you look like in great shape he said, it'd be much easier to pick up by your face mask and that he remembered <laughs> that event, I was like, okay, that wasn't just in the moment. I said he remembered it too. Oh,
1: that's a great story. And so for for everyone that's just listening on our podcast, you got a pretty cool jersey hanging behind you. It looks like that's your your holiday bull jersey. Do you want to kind of tell all all the fans out there how you got that and uh, the story behind it? So that,
0: thank you for reminding me that that, that the jersey um, is the. Bowl game jersey from the Holiday Bowl. And every bowl game MVP jersey would hang outside of the weight room players' lounge area. And fast forward to maybe was it 2017? My son was in high school. He was thinking about, you know, um, he loves football. We went up to a football camp, uh, and it was in the new practice facility. And we went up kind of early and we were touring the place and all of the different memorabilia and the things that are that are still displayed. Um, you know, got outside the weight room and was like, hey, whatever happened to all those jerseys that were hanging out there? Obviously, they didn't fit in the current um, picture of, of how things were decorated. Um, and it was Ben Henson. And he goes, hey, do you want it? Like, well, yeah, he goes, well, I think they're all upstairs. So as my son was out practicing that day, um, about an hour later, I come back out on the field, and there's my jersey sitting on the sideline. (laughs) That's, I, you know, got this thing, bring home, I just said, Ethan, I said, what do we do with this thing? He said, well, bring it home, Dad. And I'm not going to hang the thing in the house, so it's here hanging in the office, and that's why my, Bull jersey showed up
1: here. That's awesome. That's a really cool item. And I bet that's just got to be one of those things that, you know, every time you sit and take a look at it, it it draws you back a little bit and brings back some pretty cool memories. Uh,
0: Again, a a time of my life that I would not trade. And um, I I loved it. I have nothing but fond memories of the entire experience in Iowa City. Mm. And uh, it's just enjoyable to be part of a brotherhood that goes way before me and continues way after me. And Mark Velasic was a very small piece of that history and puzzle, but I was, uh, I am forever
1: grateful to be part of that. I got to tell you, Mark, we appreciate the hell out of that small piece of the puzzle. Um, what? What is everybody, uh, let everybody know out there what you're doing right now, how life is, where you're living and, and uh, what you're doing for work.
0: So uh, after my four years in San Diego, we came to the Kansas City Chiefs, thought we would be here, you know, two years. From a football perspective, it was two years. And, again, um, Mark always believing he was – should be the guy on the field. In retrospect, I'm guessing Coach Fry and all the other coaches probably had it right with a Chuck Long, uh, Dan Fouts, uh, Kansas City – Joe Montana came in here and they picked yep. him over me, uh, go figure. <laughs> but then it spent, you know, two years down in Tampa Bay. And again, back to, I think that was the point in life where the appreciation of what the Midwest values, um, seeing that in Kansas city, rem- that's where I recognized the value of what Iowa city delivered. And it was a decision that neither of us had family here, but decided to stay. Um, oh. My degree was in finance. Uh, I wanted to help people take care of their hard-earned money and making sure it worked for them. Uh, I I later on got my certified financial planning designation. But I now work for Mariner Wealth Advisors. Um, I am a financial quarterback. And again, I help people design game plans just like we did for football. Uh, You know, how, how do you implement anything if you don't have an end goal. Yeah, let's define those goals and then let's build financial plans that that include how the estate plan works, the tax planning, the investment planning, and coordinating all of that for my clients. Uh, And then my job is to bring in all the experts and franchise players. Uh, You know, Mark needs to know as a quarterback what the defense does, what the receivers do, but you don't want me running routes I'm not fast enough. You don't want me running the ball or blocking. That's my same role that I do for clients now so that they can conduct their lives and not worry about what's being, you know, that their financial world is taken care of. So it's quarterbacking for families now. And I I, I love it. Uh, Again, we've been in Kansas city now 29 years. Uh, That was an active decision and another one that we're uh, excited about. Um, I have three children, Uh, two are now married. Uh, Our youngest is at K-State and uh, um, he's going to be a junior and we're
1: just enjoying life here. Mark, that's great. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule with work and family to, to sit down and catch all the Hawkeye fans up on what you're up to now. And, you know, again, genuine thank you for all your hard work and the time you put in as a Hawkeye. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. Well, again,
0: it is something I will forever be grateful for. I've said that a number of times today. I'm sure it was somebody was watching this. I like, go, oh, man, he said that a lot. That's I, awesome, though. As much as the people in Iowa City and the fans were real when they asked, how are you, they meant it. I do mean that. And uh, to be able to share a little of that black and gold across a, a state in Nebraska that is feels like they're – more Husker fans there than Hawkeyes. It's nice to bring that to the state of Nebraska as
1: well. All right, Mark. Well, thank you so much again, and uh, have a great rest of the week, and go Hawks.
0: Well do. Go Hawks.